This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the May 23rd, 1943 edition of CBS World News Today. It includes analysis and news updates on the war from London, Algiers, Moscow, Honolulu, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. World News Today, brought to you by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's Smart Set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as the leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards. These are the latest developments. Japanese bombers have made an unsuccessful attack on American warships off Attu and the Aleutians. In the Mediterranean, Allied planes have continued their nonstop bombings of Axis airfields in Sicily and Italy. On the Russian front... The Red Army has repulsed new German attacks in the Donetsk region. And in Moscow, American envoy Joseph E. Davies is waiting for another call to the Kremlin to receive Stalin's reply to President Roosevelt's letter. Now, for our first broadcast from overseas, Admiral Radio takes you direct to CBS London. Bob Trout reporting. London. All week long, the air war against the Germans was waged in strength from this island base. But this weekend, the heavy United Nations air blows against the Axis are being struck by the Mediterranean Air Command. Last night, Royal Air Force Bomber Command's aircraft remained on the ground here in Britain, although fighter command planes were out, and there were no enemy planes over this country. Today, it was fine and sunny in the Straits of Dover, and at times noisy as the Allied planes flew out. Before we'd had word of their return, nine German FW-190s made a typical hit-and-run raid on a southeast coast town. Roaring in suddenly from rooftop height, dropping bombs, swinging around, roaring back out over the water, machine-gunning the streets as they streaked back toward enemy territory across the channel. That's the way these hit-and-run raids are made. And sometimes casualties are heavy, for if people are not caught in their homes by bombs, they may be caught in the streets by machine gun and cannon fire. In today's raid, the streets happen to be nearly empty of people. Not only that, but one-third of the enemy raiders were destroyed, so this Sunday was not a very good day for the German sneak raiders. And while this was going on, Royal Air Force Venturas, escorted by Spitfires, were bombing the Coke ovens at Zeebrugge in Belgium. All the British planes returned safely. General Catru, head of the fighting French mission in Algiers, reached London late last night, and this morning he conferred with General de Gaulle. This evening, we learned that Harold Macmillan, the British minister resident at Allied headquarters in North Africa, has also returned to London. Tomorrow, the French National Committee will meet. 
The text of General Giraud's latest letter to General de Gaulle was made public here this evening, and in it, General Giraud says, the time has come for immediate joint action for union. The way to achieve union, General Giraud's letter says, is to form at once a central executive committee to meet at Algiers. At the moment, I am not able to recall the exact number of Italians captured by the various branches of the British Armed Forces, but, of course, the number is way up in the thousands. Late this afternoon, two Italians were captured. They'd escaped from their prison camp in Britain, and their capture is credited to the South Devonshire Constabulary. And now back to CBS New York and Doug Edwards. More news in just a moment, but first, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Today, Admiral brings you another interesting story about radar. The day will soon come when American bombers can take off from combat bases and wing their way in far greater safety toward enemy targets thanks to radar. Planes equipped with ordinary altimeters face the constant hazard of crashing into unseen mountain peaks because an ordinary altimeter simply indicates the height above sea level, not the distance between plane and ground. Such an altimeter might register 5,000 feet above sea level, utterly ignoring a mountain peak towering 10,000 feet into the sky. Soon, however, American pilots will be free from such dangers, just as quickly as American planes can be equipped with radar, radar that is today being built by Admiral, because radar will tell American pilots the actual distance between their planes and the ground immediately below. Even the slightest variation in terrain will be instantly and accurately registered. In building radar, Admiral will not only help save the lives of American fighters today, but contribute much to the future success of aviation. For when peace comes, radar will be instrumental in making commercial aviation safer than ever. In just a few minutes, Admiral will tell you how radar gets its name. But first, here's Doug Edwards with more news. As we said earlier, Allied planes have kept up their systematic onslaught against Italian and Sicilian air bases. Yesterday, 17 more Axis planes were destroyed in the air and on the ground. But now, for a direct report on the latest developments in that Mediterranean war zone, which may become an invasion war zone, Admiral Radio takes you direct to CBS Algiers, Winston Burdett reporting. Now that the battle of North Africa has ended, political affairs are back in the headlines again in Algiers. The French papers today are full of reports about the expected accord between General Giraud and General de Gaulle, the accord which should bring about the union of fighting Frenchmen. They published the text of de Gaulle's latest statement, which appeared in other capitals three days ago. And the mere fact that they are now publishing what de Gaulle has to say seems a good sign. It looks as though the long-awaited agreement between the front leaders, if it is going to be reached at all, will be reached very soon now. The negotiations between the two generals have been long and difficult. If it had been just a military matter, things might have been settled long ago. But the essential differences were political differences, and the fundamental trouble all the way through was that Vichy had left a very strong heritage in North Africa. The government of Vichy left a mass of oppressive racial and social legislation. It left a number of fascist-inspired organizations, like a legion of former fighters. It left many people in high places who did not wish to go to come here. Men in the army who were sent here by the German-Italian armistice commissions, 
men of the, in the administration who were Vichy's friends, but not ours. Well, over a period of months, the political scene has changed considerably, and North Africa has become a better place to live in. The Vichy racial laws have been abolished. The others have been or are being drastically revised. During the past week, the so-called Vichy Charter of Labor was abrogated, and trade unions are now free to organize in accordance with French Republican law. The Legion of Former Fighters and other fascist associations have been dissolved. As for the pro-Vichy characters who remain on the scene, it is tacitly understood that when and if the goal comes, many of them will have to go. So the negotiations between the generals have already produced results in North Africa, good results which, which have represented a moral victory for the goal, since it was he who insisted on the restoration of Republican law and on the dissolution of Vichy organizations. The heritage left by the Petain Laval government is being slowly rooted out. It is not entirely rooted out yet. There are still men here who pay lip service to democracy, but who have quite other ideas for France. And that is why the coming of the girl would have such great importance. It would help to kill Vichy in North Africa and to ensure that nothing like Vichy happens again in France. North Africa, returning you to CBS in New York. The Russian battlefronts are still comparatively quiet, but for all dispatches, stress the fact that both sides are reported for big offensives. For a direct report, Admiral Radio takes you now to CBS Moscow, Bill Downs reporting. Former Ambassador Joseph Davies as yet has not received an answer from Mr. Stalin to President Roosevelt's letter. For the past two weeks, I will be a correspondent here in Moscow. I've been telling you to expect heavy fighting this spring and summer on the Russian front. The Russian press and Soviet military leaders have been telling the people of this country the same thing. That fighting has failed to materialize. Although you might be getting mighty tired of hearing of it, I want to repeat. There is every indication that the Red Army may have to undergo its supreme test in the next 20 weeks. You remember Winston Churchill in his speech to the American Congress the other day called it Hitler's Supreme Gambler's Show. The Fuhrer has picked up the dice of destiny and he's rattling them, but he's hesitating about throwing them out. This year's spring fighting already is ten days behind the schedule set by the start of last year's hostilities. Last year it was the Red Army who made the first cut. On May 13th of last year, Marshal Timoshenko led an offensive in the direction of Kharkov. A year ago today, the Russian communique spoke of the Red Army fortifying its gains in the Kharkov direction. It also announced that 15,000 Germans were killed in three days fighting on the middle reaches of the Donetsk River. Today, the story is much different. There is only local scouting and artillery skirmishing. There are many reasons for the delay in the summer's fighting, reasons which grow out of the tremendous sacrifices which both the Germans and the Russians suffered in last winter's fighting. We are told it is almost a certainty that Hitler will start the fighting this spring. But he is hesitating because this time he feels he must not fail. He must get this campaign rolling before he has to organize another to protect his European fortress from a second front. Yes, Adolf Hitler has just about completed placing his bets on the Russian front. 
and the Red Army is covering all of them. And this is Bill Downs returning you now to CBS in New York. Here in our New York studio are two American war correspondents who spent many months together in Russia, in Moscow, and on the battlefronts. Walter Kerr, New York Herald Tribune correspondent, has just returned from Moscow. CBS correspondent Larry Lesseur preceded him home. They are ready to give you their views based on long observations inside the Soviet Union of what the dissolution of the Communist International really means. Larry Lesseur, suppose you lead off. Well, there's no more interesting story in the world today than the dissolution of the Communist International. Interesting not only to us Americans, but to the peoples of conquered Europe, to Hitler and his allies, and to the people of Russia. I know that this afternoon men are whispering about it on the street corners of Paris, in the cafes of Berlin, and near the red walls of the Kremlin in distant Moscow. I'd like to ask Walter Kerr what he thinks the Russians are saying about it this afternoon. What's your opinion, Walter? Well, Larry, I'm sure that right now men and women are talking about this near Pushkin Square, in Gorky Street, in Moscow's famed subway, out in the Park of Culture and Rest, and probably at the ballet between the acts. I think you will agree with me that they are glad to hear about the dissolution of the Communist International. The people of Moscow are tired of that sort of thing. They're fighting a hard war. They're interested only in winning that war, in rebuilding their homes, and after the defeat of the Axis, to live their lives in peace. Walter, I don't remember hearing anything about common turn while I was in Moscow. Did you? Very little, Larry. In fact, every Russian I talked to told me the International was dead and that it had been for a long time. Only once in the 18 months I was there did I see it mentioned in the newspapers, and that was a one-paragraph item which said the Comintern's office workers had contributed a little money to the Russian defense fund. A lot of people here are wondering whether this dissolution of the Comintern is just a tactical move designed to last only for the duration of the war. Perhaps it's too early to tell now, but anyway, Walter, dissolution of the International removes one of the great obstacles to complete cooperation between the United Nations. Furthermore, it weakens the Axis nations, which are bound together by the anti-Comintern Pact. Now there's a pact, but there's no Comintern, so the pact stands for nothing. I think there'll be a decided reaction in conquered Europe. Hitler's propaganda line, Larry, is that he is protecting the people of Europe from international communism. But now the communist parties in enslaved Europe have been instructed to work with and to support, through the underground movement, their legally constituted governments in exile. And so it seems that Hitler's propaganda line has lost any possible significance. Well, today Hitler is still trying to claim that dissolution of the common turn means nothing. And that he's still the protector of Europe, saving it from Bolshevism. We know differently that Moscow's abandonment of world revolution will have a great effect in strengthening the United Nations uh, during this great battle for their existence. It looks to me like just another nail driven into the Axis coffin. Yes, I think you're right. Hitler will find this out just as soon as the communist underground members in Europe start to work in complete harmony with the other political parties of enslaved Europe. Larry, what do you think the effect of all this will be in America? Well, the Communist Party is not just a phrase. It's an organization of people. People who are fervent disciples of an economic religion. They, of course, will continue to be such. The Communist Party of America will continue to exist, but as a unit in itself and not as a part of a worldwide organization. If the dissolution means what Moscow has said it means, American communists will work without directives from Moscow, and they'll support our American form of government until Hitler goes down in defeat. I think, Larry, that the Comintern has been more of a hindrance than a help to the Soviet Union in wartime, so the Comintern is out. Yes, and my guess is that Stalin is glad to trade his Comintern for a second front in Europe. And now, here in our New York studio, is Columbia's military analyst, Major George Elding Elliott. 
There is every evidence that the Italian Air Force is dwindling away rapidly, both in numbers and in spirit. During the last four days, no less than 305 Axis aircraft have been destroyed by Allied raids on Sicily, Sardinia, and southern Italy, with very small losses of Allied planes. Many of these Axis aircraft were destroyed on the ground. Some of the planes destroyed have been German, but the majority were Italian. Since the total first-line operating strength of the Italian Air Force was not much over a thousand combat-type planes at the beginning of the last phase of the Tunisian operations, there is a strong likelihood that the much-vaunted air power of Benito Mussolini is moving toward the vanishing point. As for the German Luftwaffe, there is not much prospect that it will send many of its fighters to defend Italy when these fighters are so badly needed at home to protect the vital centers of Germany itself. German fighter strength is being concentrated in Western Germany under the pressure of a terrible necessity. And this is being done at a time when Germany is preparing for a great stroke on the Russian front, a forlorn hope on which all the little remaining chance of German military success in this war is being staked. One can imagine the pressure being put on the high command by the German army commanders in Russia for more air power and more air power to protect their communications and storage dumps from the Red Air Force, which is raiding them by day and by night. Under these conditions, there is not much likelihood of any strong German air power being told off to protect Italy. Sicily and Sardinia seem to be undergoing a systematic softening up process, which may very well be the preliminary to invasion. It remains to be seen whether the Italian army will fight any better in defense of its native soil than it has fought in other theaters of war. Across the Pacific, CBS correspondent is standing by to bring you an interview with one of our flyers who took part in the recent raid on Wake Island. For this and the latest Pacific news, Admiral Radio takes you after a brief pause to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. Hot activity continued at both ends of the long Pacific front this weekend, with the Americans mopping up on the Aleutian island of Attu on one end, and a continued pounding of the air war on Jap bases by Allied bombers and fighters at the other end, in the Solomons and New Guinea. While the run to Wake Island hasn't quite become the milk route, United States Army bombers have bombed Wake five separate times. You've heard of the success of these bombing operations, the most recent of which was a week ago when 24,000 pounds of high-explosive bombs were dropped successfully on Jap supplies, materials, and installations. With me here is Staff Sergeant John H. Allen of Lowell, Massachusetts, gunner on a four-motored B-24 Liberator bomber. He was one of the men on that raid. Uh, Sergeant, uh, tell us, where's your gun located? It's the belly gun on the Ready Teddy. Some folks think a belly gunner is a man who stretches out on his stomach to shoot, but it's just the name of the gunner we call... Uh, uh, the gunner who fires the belly of a uh, bomber. Well, what's the uh, Ready Teddy crew? Oh, that's the name of our bomber, the Ready Teddy. We got a picture of the teddy bear dropping a bomb down on Tokyo painted on it. Well, tell us about this uh, raid on Wake. We were in a squadron commanded by Major Dan of Billings. I was in a plane he was piloting with Lieutenant Raymond Henderson as co-pilot. We also carried Colonel Clarence F. Heggie, who commanded the entire flight. He's only 36 years old, too. Our navigator, Lieutenant John Bridge, got us there right on. And our bombardier, Lieutenant Howard Baysmore, got our bomb squarely on the target. 
The weather was cloudy, and he took us over the target four times to get them right on. Did you see them hit? Yes, I happened to see them, Lan, and right on the button they were, too. Right away, though, I got too busy to, for much sightseeing, sightseeing, because uh, we ran into Jap Zero fighters, and all the guns got too busy. Tech Sergeant John Padone was right in the waist. I was in the belly. Staff Sergeant Louis Alexander was in the tail, and Staff Sergeant Ralph Eden was in the turret above. And once Lieutenant Bridge navigated us there, he got on the gun, too. Tech Sergeant John Cotton was making taking pictures of the bombing for the record. And Colonel Hagee surprised us, surprised us by grabbing a gun and firing away. He's a good shot, too. That's what I hear. Say, uh, how many zeros were there in all? About 20. Ten or 12 were flying around us, holding off at first. I don't think they like to mix it, mix it with us unless we're, they can gang up on a lone opponent. Pretty soon, they started coming in. We kept right on going, though. I was following those zeros pretty close. And our whole crew of gunners were getting in some good shots. Then I got a bead right on one and let them have it. I could see some of Jack Pannon's bursts going into him at the same time. All of a sudden, the Jap flew into pieces. Well, how do you feel about getting your first Jap Zero, Sergeant? Well, that isn't the way we figure it. That plane was shot down by the Ready Teddy crew. There were several bullets from several guns in them. Whatever we do, we do as a crew, and the crew gets the credit. We share the works in the bomber. Well, Sergeant, your father, John F. Allen, is back there in Lowell, Massachusetts, isn't he? Yes, he is. He lives there alone now. Well, what's his uh, occupation? Since I got in the Air Corps, he works in a parachute factory, making parachutes. He makes parachutes. Well, John, here's hoping you and the Ready Teddy crew and your new squadron commander, Captain Allen H. Wood, never have need for any of his parachutes. We've interviewed Staff Sergeant John H. Allen... Gunner on the good ship Ready Teddy. A B-24, four-motored Liberator bomber on last week's Wake Island raid. This is Webley Edwards in Honolulu, returning you to CBS in New York. Next, for developments here at home, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington. Lee White reporting. There has been no change in the situation on Act 2. A brief Navy communique this afternoon reported an unsuccessful Japanese bombing attack on two American warships operating in the Atu area. But aside from mentioning that 15 twin-engine bombers took part in the raid, the Navy gave no details. At Hot Springs, Virginia this evening, Richard Law, chairman of the British delegation, will offer to the food conference a detailed plan for freeing the post-war world from want. Though the text of his address will not be released until 7 o'clock, it's believed that his plan will entail an international food bank to lay away the agricultural surpluses of bumper years for international distribution in years of famine. Instead of curtailing production, it's understood, the British plan would increase production by subsidizing both the production and consumption of protective foods, that is, meat and dairy products as well as cereals. Speaking of food, the new coffee ration will be 15% greater than any we've had so far. Stamp number 24, which becomes valid on May 31st, will provide one pound of coffee for a 30-day period. Heretofore, the most liberal ration has been one pound spread over 35 days. Gasoline rations, however, are going to become much smaller before they get any larger, at least on the eastern seaboard. The Office of Defense Transportation has, redu has reduced the rations of trucks, buses, and taxis by 40 percent. 
Only city buses and trucks serving war industries will be eligible for extra rations from now on. The WPB is now preparing a list of priorities. Luxury delivery service will simply be no more. Henceforth, it will be prohibited for stores to deliver such things as beer, liquor, ice cream, and flowers. I return you now to New York and Doug Edwards. Once again, here's Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. Here's a message from our sponsor. How radar, now being built by Admiral, gets its name. Radar, through fog, clouds, darkness, and distance beyond the limits of human vision, detects enemy planes and ships and determines their exact location. In military terms, this is called radio detection and ranging. And radar is a composite of the initial letters of these four words. R-A for radio, D for detecting, A for and, R for ranging. Together we have R-A-D-A-R, radar, a radio device for detecting and ranging. In peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, Admiral today is turning out radar for Uncle Sam and the files of the War and Navy Departments give ample testimony of its value to our fighting men. Radar is at work now saving American lives, helping to destroy the enemy. Next week, Admiral will tell you how radar safeguards our convoys. For your country's sake, for your own sake, buy war bonds. Put every cent possible into war bonds. In so doing, you'll help stop inflation... You'll be supplying our boys with the planes, tanks, and guns they need, and you'll be providing yourself with a nest egg to use in obtaining the good things available when the war is won. Buy war bonds this week and every week. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by Continental Radio and Television Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave, direct from the leading news centers of the world. Warren Sweeney speaking for Admiral Radio. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.